0: I'm Danielle Yett, and you're listening to Critical Faith. This podcast is coming to you from the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics at the Institute for Christian Studies. ICS is a graduate school of philosophy in Toronto, and we're gathering friends and members of our ICS community here on this podcast to talk about all things faith, scholarship, and society, and the many ways those things interact. We hope Critical Faith gives you a bit of a glimpse into the everyday life of ICS.
1: My name is Mark Standish, and I'm a junior member at ICS. Remote courses are well underway here, but we're already thinking ahead to the courses coming down the pike for next semester. Today, to tell us about one of these courses, we have Andrew Tebbit back with us to chat about his upcoming course called Body, Language, Power, The Question of the Human in 20th Century French Philosophy. Details for this course are still being ironed out, but it will be starting this January. Keep an eye on our website for information as it becomes available. But first, here's Andrew to give you an idea of what this course will be about. This semester, Andrew Tabot, ICS Sessional Lecturer and Postdoctoral Research Associate at the CPRSE, will be teaching an all-online course called Body Language Power, The Question of the Human in 20th Century French Philosophy. So we have Andrew back with us, this time on the other side of the microphone, to tell us all about it. Welcome Andrew. Thanks for having me. So let's start with the title of the course. Body, language, power, the question of the human in 20th century French philosophy. Why are those three things, body, language, and power, worth highlighting? And how do they relate?
2: Well, yeah, so I will i wanted to say something about each of those three things um, in a minute. But I first kind of want to start by just characterizing the general approach of the course, which is basically uh, existential phenomenology or just, you know, straight up phenomenology. So phenomenology is a philosophical practice that describes the world from the perspective of, of our living the world. So another way that that's often uh, put is that phenomenology says, you know, the, the first philosophical question that one should ask isn't, you know, what what is that thing? Phenomenology asks the, what's sometimes called the what's it like question. Um, mm. So what's it like to experience the things of our world as opposed to what are the things of our world? What kind of ontological status do they have? So this, this practice of describing reality from a lived point of view, this was uh, inaugurated by uh, Edmund Husserl and fundamentally altered by Heidegger, Martin Heidegger. So starting with those two figures, it's a it's a philosophical approach that kind of you know really re reorients the way we think about things and and kind of renders questionable a lot of the things that, a lot of our familiar ways of thinking about both ourselves mm-hmm. and and the world. Um, and the, the first thing that I want to highlight about that, which is kind of central to to this course, is the way that phenomenology and that way of asking questions challenges our sense of ourselves and who we are. Um, so we tend to think about ourselves and a lot of predominant discourses about, about who and what we are tend to present the self, the, the human being as primarily a kind of independent, individual, self-defining, self-determining, willing agent or a kind mm. of chooser. right? Like, you know, we are... The authors of our experience, you know, and and to to a considerable extent, the meaning of things is is up to our choosing. And of course, we do these things, like we make choices, we decide, you know, what what to do with ourselves. We uh, we're responsible. Like that that's true. But that sense of ourselves being like self-contained individual agents is kind of only half the picture, and it it itself is neither an accurate nor a complete characterization of the human situation. First of all, I guess that sense of ourselves as a kind of independent rational chooser is kind of premise on this idea that, you know, we are a subject and the world outside of us is this object and sort of the first thing to, to, to go as it were in, in phenomenological description is the distinction between subject and object or distinction Mm -hmm. between our, us as selves and the world as a series of objects and what careful attention to the way that we leave, we live things shows us is that we live our world in a kind of fundamental contact or a kind of fundamental coexistence between our, ourselves and the world so so the most basic thing about our experience um phenomenology shows isn't that we you know we're we're able to rationally choose what to do it's that we're kind of engaged in a world already and we are only you know make choices and decide who we are in the context of a of a kind of contact with the outside world, what what Heidegger calls being in the world. Mm. So that's the general perspective that this course is taking. And we're taking our point of departure with the way that that basic phenomenological insight um, from Husserl and Heidegger was uh, developed by people like Sartre and Merleau-Ponty. Great. Thank you.
1: So we have these three things in your course, body, language, and power. And we've just talked about the phenomenological perspective um, that you're taking in the course how are those things connected? How, how do they relate to each other? Um, and to the phenomenological perspective that we just uh, outlined?
2: Yeah, they relate to each other as basically three primary sites at which we can observe this, the basic fact of our, what I'll call the non distinction between subject and object. Hmm. So body language and power, three dimensions of our experience, where the the reflective representational account where we're a subject distinct from the world around us will, will show itself to be inadequate. Mm. And I, th- I think probably the, the clearest one, and this is where we'll start um, relatively early in the class, is, is thinking about the body. Um, because you know when you think about the body, like, we think about our having a body, or we think about the body that we have in terms of other people's bodies that we observe, which is to say we think about our body as an object. Right? We tend to think about our body um, in the way that we think about our body when we're at the doctor's office and when the doctor is asking us to point to where it hurts and that sort of thing. So our, our standard conception of what it means to, to have and be a body presupposes this distinction between who we are as subjects and objects right? because we tend to think of our, our, our body as, as a kind of object in the world. And phenomenologies that deal with embodiment pretty powerfully show that our body isn't an object that we inhabit as minds, our body is our whole situation. Hmm. Like, our our body is, again, not ultimately distinct from the world around us, such that, you know, everything that we, and this is something that Maurice makes makes very clear in his phenomenology, uh, the significance of our body and the significance of having a body goes beyond, you know, our fingertips, as it were, and extends to our whole perceptual experience, like mm. the whole world makes sense to us in the way that it does, insofar as our experience is thoroughly embodied, right? So M- Merleau-Ponty discourages us from, from using the language of, of having a body as a subject, and encourages us instead to think about embodiment as such as characteristic of, of what it's like to, to be in the world, mm. you know? So I like to think about that in terms of um, thinking about disability right hmm. like and, and and to think about how how inadequate the the objective sense of having a body is when speaking of disability right because if our body is just an object and we're just we're we're minds inside bodies then talking about disability amounts to talking about defects or hmm. limitations in the object that you inhabit but really what the phenomenological approach allows us to see is that talking about disability is actually talking about problems in that basic communication between the body and the world, right? So to to have a disability isn't to have something wrong with your body. To have a disability is to live in a world that's set up for a body that's not you. Mm-hmm. To make things more accessible um, is actually to reshape the world as opposed to just to, you know, change things for for particular bodies, right? It's it's a it's a basic world self contact problem as opposed to just a, a body problem, if that makes sense. Hmm. I'll say something about language um, and, then, and then power as well. An, a, another standard story that we tell ourselves about our experience, and it's about language as basically some kind of, a sort of tool or, or medium that we use to translate our thoughts. So if it's the case that we are subjects that live our lives completely on the inside and the, the world of objects is completely outside, then language on, on that view as the external manifestation of a thought is is going to be a kind of a derivative secondary phenomenon that just translates thinking thoughts that you have in, in your head. Mm. Phenomenology in again subverting that basic distinction between subject and object says that's not really how we experience language. That's not really how we how we use language. Like if you think about, you know, your experience of using language of being in a conversation, you rarely if ever have fully formed thoughts that you then Find the words for and and put out there. Like maybe once in a while, you 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 quietly contemplate to yourself what you want to say, and then you go out and say it. I I, when I think about my experience of 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 speaking and communicating. Like it's almost never the case mm. that my thoughts are complete, and then I just translate my thoughts in language. Rather, there's a kind of continuity between inside and outside in in the act of communicating. Such that language doesn't isn't the translation of thought. Language is the fulfillment or accomplishment of thought you think about when you're you know when you're when you're struggling to find the right word for something like you it's not just that you don't have the right word you also not your thought is kind of incomplete hmm. well and then suddenly when you get the word you get the thought at the same time language uh, shows itself to be not this derivative external mechanism for translating thought but a kind of way of being in the world being in the world with others that's that's fundamentally in continuity with with what we call thinking hmm. and then lastly uh just speaking about power so I, m- I mentioned um, talking about ability and disability before. It, what that what that point shows is that like the basic communion or, or communication between between self and world, you know, that is our body. That isn't always the same for every person, for every for every body, and like their their communion or communication can be set up in certain ways that you know privilege some forms of experience over others. Right? It's like in in this sense, you know, to be disabled is to live in a world that's that's set up for a body, as I say, that that isn't. Isn't yours. So that thinking about that discrepancies um, turns us to the theme of of power, which you know in this course sort of is kind of like an umbrella term that we'll use to think about various ways in which the basic self-world continuity you know, privileges some experiences over others. Um, so in this in this course, we'll we'll talk especially about uh, race and gender in, in those terms, in the terms of the way that that there are certain privileged and and non-privileged or underprivileged forms of, of experience. Um, and, you know, the question to ask is, first of all, to use uh, the practice of phenomenological description to show us when, when those systems, you know, function oppressively, and then to think about what sort of experiences point to ways out of those oppressive systems. Hmm. What are the possibilities for um, you know resistance or reinvention, or as as uh, Julia Kristeva will say, a revolt against... Those systems and those histories that sort of uh, freeze certain certain versions of the of the self-world continuity in in oppressive ways.
1: You were first introduced to the themes of this course when you were taking your MA here at ICS. What struck you then when first encountering the phenomenological approach, and what do you feel is your distinctive contribution to the topic
2: by teaching this
1: course now?
2: Um, yeah, that's a that's a great question. So I like I think back to my time. When I first came to ICS, and you know, I'd studied phenomenology before. You know, I'd studied people like Sartre and Merleau-Ponty um, before coming to ICS. Um, so it, it, it wasn't that I was given new material, but there's something distinctive about um, the courses that I took at ICS, in that they they sort of showed me, without really saying it, that studying philosophy uh, is much more than just studying philosophers. Hmm. So you know, I I again, I was familiar with phenomenology. I I studied Heidegger's idea of readiness to hand. You know, I knew that. I got the idea. I got the point. I knew that uh, that this was a distinctly Heideggerian idea. But I found that ICS the emphasis was less on like whose idea it was um, and how it fits into the history history of philosophy, and much more about you know learning from Heidegger and, and others how this idea illuminated like my world. Hmm. Um, so it was it was less important you know who was saying this particular idea, who was particularly offering this this insight. But it was more at issue. In in my courses at ICS was how this idea spoke to the, the reality that I that I lived, you know. And and we, as students at ICS, we were of course c- equipped to you know to read difficult ph- philosophical prose and communicate it clearly ourselves. Like we were we were instructed in those in those basic habits and and skills of of graduate school, but we were also encouraged to use that work to to think about how these ideas that we were thinking about and writing about were true of the world around us. You know, it's this is like it's usually the stated goal of philosophy classes that like the ideas we're talking about should, you know, illuminate the world around you, but it's not always practice in that sense. Like like philosophy sometimes tends to gravitate towards doing academics and talking just thinking about ideas in terms of who their author is. Hmm. And whether what Heidegger says about this idea is different from from Sartre, or whether what Sartre says is different from Simone de Beauvoir, and you know those are important things to do. And like like it, much of, of philosophical work is is about negotiating the differences and similarities between philosophers. Um, but at ICS, you know the thing that that I, that I found was communicated to me pretty clearly right away was that the, if anything, that stuff was secondary. Like the first thing to do was to really learn from these thinkers and learn how what they were saying was about me hmm. to the extent that it was it was about the world that I that I lived in and experienced, you know, and only on that basis, you know, is it really worth talking about like the differences between, between philosophers. So that's, that's something that I sort of detected when I, when I came to ICS and, and it's, this is an approach that I'm, that I will try to adopt in, in this class, that the, the main thing to do will to, will be to try to, first of all, understand what a particular thinker is saying. And and then to think about how that idea is true of, of our own experience to the extent that it is. Yeah. That makes
1: so much sense. It feels like so, phenomenological almost like uh, i think about the end of the phenomenology of perception by merleau ponty where he he talks about the cogito uh, descartes idea and he basically like describes his experience he does a phenomenology of reading descartes meditations and in some sense he's coming back to the point of like does this actually line up with my experience and if you've lost track of that you've really lost track of point of phenomenology, I feel like. So I would encourage people to study philosophy in this way and to study under Andrew that philosophy.
2: <laughs> yeah, thanks. No, but I think you're right. Like, I think phenomenological thinkers are, are pretty adept at, you know, reading other other philosophers who might otherwise be their opponents and like finding the finding the insight, you know, like as you say, like Merleau-Ponty does for, for Descartes, right? Hmm. Like there's, there's a sense in which abandoning the representational way of thinking that we talked about before might lead you to say, "Oh, Descartes out," you know, because Descartes posits that that there's a, this, this this complete division between mind and body. There's a complete division between my experience that's for itself, and you know, the world outside that's in itself. And you know, Merleau-Ponty, while wanting to undercut that distinction, does so in a way that that completely honors what what Descartes offered in terms of phenomenological insights. Hmm. Just to take a step back about.
1: This course as a whole and phenomenology, especially 20th century French phenomenology, but not necessarily exclusive to that. What are some resources uh, that you found, text, videos, interviews or something like along those lines that people could go to to
2: jump into this phenomenological discussion. Yeah, I think a, a few things come to mind. There's a there's a handful of figures working in phenomenology now who I think are, are doing meaningful work thinking about race and gender in terms of phenomenology. Mm-hmm. So one person in particular that stands out is um, a person called Lewis R. Gordon, who uh, works on black existential phenomenology. Mm-hmm. I've, I found it a pretty... A couple of pretty interesting uh, videos on YouTube of him. One's a pretty short one where he talks about the human being as a, I think, as a being human as a matter of being in relationships. So getting at the idea of of the relational vision or the relational image of the human being. Hmm. So if you if you look up Lewis Gordon and uh, a black existentialism or or black phenomenology, you can find some some material from him. Um, he's also uh, a phenomen scholar, so he's written I think a couple, at least a couple books on. On Fennel, um, but also Sartre and and um, and race. So he's he's a he's he's a, a good resource for, for anyone interested in phenomenology, existentialism, and race. Two other people who are are pretty prominent in phenomenology who who write about race are uh, Robert Bernasconi and uh, Linda Martin Alcoff. They have a variety of, of wor- works on on race um, and phenomenology. So I don't have any one in particular to. To recommend, but um, you can look up those figures and and find their their work. And there's a just in terms of an introduction to the to these movements, um, I can point to a couple of short texts that uh, won't be in the class, but I think are really good introductions to to this material. Um, one by Sartre, one by Merleau-Ponty. The one by Sartre is existentialism and human emotions. And in fact, the lecture in that book, I think, is called existentialism as a humanism. Um, it's a really a really good sort of down to earth, concrete introduction to existentialism. And Merleau-Ponty has a short, a really short text that I I think actually saw life first as a series of radio interviews um, called "The World of Perception." Uh, I believe it's published by Routledge. That's a really—I've read that a few times with 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 um, some people in the context of introducing phenomenology. I think that's a really, really good introduction to the kind of practice that phenomenology is, and the kind of the kind of insights that you get when you when you study phenomenology. He talks about his his point basically is is that we. The book is called "The World of Perception," and his point is that in our in our philosophical and scientific discourse, we've we've overlooked the perceived world. Mm. Um, we've talked about the world as uh, you know scientists are used to talking about it, and we've overlooked the world as we perceive it. And so he's his in those interviews, in those or little radio broadcasts, he's trying to re- return us to the world of perception. And he talks about talks about art, talks about other people, he talks about the sort of strange continuity between human and animal life as perceived engaged perceivers. Um, anyways, that, that's a, a really good little short text that you could find and read for yourself too. But that's yeah, that's what comes to mind in terms of introductory resources.
1: Well, thank you so much for giving us a window onto this whole phenomenological world and giving us some texts to dive in. And also, I hope that our listeners go check out those texts and uh, but also take your course Um, to really get their feet wet in what phenomenology is and that approach to both philosophy and to life. So thank you again for coming on with us. Thank you very
2: much.
0: And that brings us to our final segment, What's Your Pleasure? This is where we get to kick off our shoes and talk about the other things we do for fun. The movies and television shows we're watching, the sports and games we play, the food and drink we make and enjoy, the music we listen to, and so on. So, Mark, what's your pleasure?
1: So, my pleasure this week, uh, which is, I have referenced this um, artist before, but not this song. So... And it's a bit of a weird one because I don't really know what the song means, but I get a lot of images from it. So it's the song Barbary Coast by Conor Oberst, and I'll read you a few lines. Maybe you'll get what I mean when I say. Get a lot of images, but I'm not really sure what he's talking about, but I like it anyway. So (laughs) he sings, there's a dance hall there where the sick folks go like the olden days on the Barbary Coast. There's a barefoot child playing in the rain. You can sell your wares even if they're hot in the great bazaar or the parking lot because it takes a while to know who to blame. I might have a taste because the first one's free and the checkout girls got a thing for me and they're both as sweet as the day is long. There you go. And then the chorus is I don't want to feel stuck, baby. I just want to get drunk before noon. So <laughs> you could take wow. that for that's, that's, that. Is, uh my pleasure this week.
0: So Mark, why does this speak to you right now?
1: <laughs> I don't know why it came up. Danielle and I were talking about before we were uh recording, and I don't actually remember how the Barbary Coast came up.
0: You I think you literally just said Barbary Coast <laughs> with no no Sequitur. <laughs> no,
1: but there was there was there was some reason why I started thinking about it. Um in our conversation no one.
0: Oh, i think it was the golden girl <laughs> you're talking about the golden girl
1: <laughs> right which is like uh, i couldn't even explain to our listeners how that connection was made and why we were talking about it but um anyways the song uh i just find the the, uh, the concept of this weird like it's the it's it's the great bazaar or the parking lot This weird notion of like it's almost like um like a heaven almost you know it's like a utopic Mm -hmm. vision but at the same time it's not very utopic at all
0: (laughs) well now i'm debating in reality confessing that my pleasure is golden girls because (laughs) i have been i've been watching it for the first time ever and just been blazing through it but I will instead confess to another, it is, a, it is like a guilty pleasure. It fits squarely into that category. So my actual pleasure this week is those really terrible like Hallmark holiday rom-com movies that come out about this time of year. Okay. Because I've been waiting the whole year for them to come out hmm. at this time of year. And there's one that I'm actually going to watch tonight. Hmm, what's it called? Uh, Holiday. date.
1: <laughs> wow, and
0: they're terrible. Like they're bad. And I would never used to be into watching these kinds of movies. Like I would always make fun of them and I don't know. and it's a later in life kind of discovery relatively speaking that I've come to be like, you know what? I just need this cotton candy trash. In my life right now. So, how do
1: you watch it? Like, are you watching it like ironically or like indulgently?
0: It honestly depends on the movie itself Hmm. because they're all different. Because they some walk the ironic line a bit more closely than others do. Yeah. So it's easier to watch them and be like, "This is fun," more funny. Mm-hmm. And a bit less cringy, even though the funny is based on a cringe factor of a kind.
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah.
0: And then others totally just blow right past that line and wind up in cringe territory, and it's the watching of them is itself ironic because they're not trying to be ironic. Hmm. Um, and then others are just like, you know, something on, and it's a predictable storyline, and it's a comfort thing where you can kind of just turn off for a bit.
1: It's like watching golf.
0: <laughs> That's it for our show this week. If you'd like to learn more about this course, Body, Language, Power, The Question of the Human in 20th Century French Philosophy, beginning January 2021, or if you'd like to register for the course, you can visit our website at www.icscanada.edu. You can also email our registrar, Elizabeth Aras, at academic-registrar at icscanada.edu with any questions you might have. If you'd like to know more about the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics, and the Institute for Christian Studies, you can find more information on the website just mentioned, and if anything from this week's show piqued your interest, you can also email us at criticalfaith at icscanada.edu. You can also find us on Twitter. You can follow Mark as at Mark Standish. You can follow me as at Beware the Yeti, And you can follow ICS as at INSCHR.
1: And from the heart of ICS, thank you all for listening. This has been Critical Faith. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, follow along with us on Spotify, or find us on your podcast app of choice. Remember, following and reviewing the podcast helps people find us and keeps us on their radar. Most importantly, tell your friends.